This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portia. My name's Andrew Carroll. Today we are discussing someone who I dubbed the Sean Bean of Japan in a Facebook chat with you, <laughs> Oscar nominee Ken Watanabe. Andrew, run yeah, down the history. He's, he's died that many times. <laughs> Ken Watanabe was born in Niigata in Japan in 1959. He moved to Tokyo to start acting in 1978. Uh, after success in theatre, he moved to TV and film in the early 80s and became well known for his samurai roles. He has been nominated for the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for The Last Samurai. And he won the Japanese Academy Best Actor Prize twice uh, and was nominated for a Tony and Grammy for his role in the Broadway and West End productions The King and I. Uh, His Western work is mostly done in blockbusters like Batman Begins, Inception, the last two Transformers films and Detective Pikachu. Uh, He's appeared in smaller Western films like Sea of Trees and Bel Canto and he will appear in Michael Mann's upcoming Tokyo Vice TV series. I was so happy when I just... Yeah, one day was refreshing the Tokyo Vice Wikipedia page because it's my home screen. And yeah, (laughs) uh, I saw Ken's name show up. That's going to be so good. I know. I can't wait. Um, Yeah, from watching a bunch of Watanabe movies um, in quick succession, I kind of noticed that in at least American movies, he plays these serious authoritative figures, but often kind of imbues them with um, a lot of emotion and humor and a lot of his characters are tragic heroes and the roles he plays are often you know very three-dimensional and it, it seems from yeah. seeing interviews with him it's something he seeks out because he said speaking about the parts he's mostly offered that about half the script sent to me feature characters i just can't identify with particularly one-dimensional businessmen or if it's a comedy some absurd 10 year old japanese stereotype some role related to it or business there's no point in getting mad about it it's just the way things are yeah the first thing i watched uh for this was tampopo which uh, i went back as far as 1985 uh it's one of his earliest roles and it's sort of well a big break i imagine and it might be like the best movie discovery I've made through this podcast in that I probably wouldn't oh, wow. I probably wouldn't have seeked it out if if we weren't doing an episode on Watanabe. Uh, so thanks for pitching yeah. him, Andrew. No problem. Uh, Tampopo, which is just like, it's even delightful just to say Tampopo. It's this uh, Japanese yeah. comedy all about food and its main story centers on these two truck drivers and amateur foodies. Um, there's the experienced Goro and, and he, a younger sidekick named Gun, who's played by Watanabe. And they help a widowed, a struggling restaurant owner named Tampopo, which is Japanese for dandelion, perfect the art of making ramen and re- renovate a restaurant. But around the main story, there are all these like side plots involving food. And the movie begins with this young gangster introducing the film in a cinema screen before threatening a man eating and rustling a crisp packet loudly behind him. <laughs> and uh, we later see him and his mall exploring kind of erotic ways of using food. And then like other vignettes follow this like lowly worker who upstages his superiors by displaying like a vast culinary knowledge while ordering at this gourmet French restaurant in a really funny scene. <laughs> there's a there's a housewife who rises from her deathbed to cook one last meal for her family. There's <laughs> a, a woman's etiquette class on how to eat spaghetti properly and or there's this really funny scene involving a supermarket clerk who has to deal with this um older woman who's obsessed with squeezing food. Like she just goes around the store just like touching all the cheese <laughs> and all the fruit. Uh, on top of being uh, like this very beautiful humorous movie about the importance of food and how 
you know, it's the one, it's kind of one of the th- only things that binds everyone together truly. Uh, it also has yeah. all these like playful nods to old westerns and film noir and French New Wave flicks. And in fact, the publicity for Tempopo at the time billed it as a ramen western, sort of a riff on the old Italian spaghetti westerns. Yeah. So yeah. if if you don't mind subtitles, and I pray if you're listening to this, you you, you probably don't. It's a very accessible movie. Yeah, especially and... if you can find a version of it with subtitles. Because I was true. going to watch it for this, and I couldn't find a version of it with subtitles, so... <laughs> yeah, apart from the fact that you can't find it, it's really accessible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of Watanabe in the movie, I think he's a lot of fun. He he does disappear a little bit in the movie for a while, as the film becomes a bit of a will-they-won't-they they between his older truck driver pal Goro and Tampopo. But he, but he gets time to shine. Like I think his biggest scene happens early on in this... Um, basically explainer on how to eat ramen properly it, it shows Watanabe learning from an old gentleman the correct way of enjoying the meal um, a scene which we later learn isn't actually real but is just a, an enactment of a story that Gun is reading to Goro while driving their truck and making their deliveries <laughs> but it's a really nice scene because it sets up kind of the light tone of the movie and it, it also establishes the reverence Tampopo has for ramen and Japanese cuisine but also is like poking fun at those who can get too snooty about it and like Watanabe yeah. in the scene is so excited to wolf down the bowl of ramen but his sensei keeps making him wait so like Gun <laughs> asks ask the master like super noodles first and the guy responds like first observe the whole bowl and uh, I, I've actually transcribed the whole conversation here because it's in Japanese and we can't drop in the audio, but it's worth hearing. So I'm, I'm just going to reenact a bit of it. But it, like the old gentleman okay. says, appreciate its gasalt, savor the aromas, jewels of fat glistening on the surface, shinashiku root shining, seaweed slowly sinking, spring onions floating, concentrate on three pork slices. They play the key role, but stay modestly hidden. First caress the surface with the chopstick tips. What for? To express affection. <laughs> that's a lot of stuff like that and then he's like then poke the pork eat the pork first no just touch it caress it with the chopstick <laughs> tips gently pick it up and dip it into the soup on the right of the bowl what's important here is to apologize to the pork by saying see you soon there's a lot of stuff like that it's really funny yeah and um the other yeah. great scene with Watanabe is um there's a bit where Tampopo asks Goro and Gun for their honest opinion of her ramen yeah, at the start of the comedy, and Goro is trying to couch his criticism, saying like, "Well, it has some solid, honest flavor, but it, it kind of lacks pizzazz." And Gun butts in, just being like, "Basically, it sucks." <laughs> and he has this like, well, at blunt- least he's honest. Yeah, and he has this like honest bluntness throughout the movie. Like, there's a part where they're coming up with a new new recipes and are renovating Tampopo's restaurant, and he pitches giving Tampopo a makeover, and Goro says like Tampopo's fine the way she is you idiot because he loves her and Gun replies she's a diamond but she needs polishing and Goro goes to attack him <laughs> it's really funny and um a few years after Tampopo Watanabe had to quit acting for a while after being diagnosed with leukemia before making a return mm. to movies in the late 90s but I think even as early back as Tampopo like he shows he has great comic timing and I think that's a quality which gets used to disarm audiences in later movies like The Last Samurai and Inception because it's not what you expect from the characters in those movies when you first meet them. Yeah. Do you want to go into the plot of The Last Samurai and Watanabe's character? General Hasegawa asked me to help him end his life. A samurai cannot stand the shame of defeat. I was honored to cut off his head. Many of our customs seem strange to you, and the same is true of yours. For example, 
Not to introduce yourself is considered extremely rude, even among enemies. It's a movie that is very hard to see past Tom Cruise's massive ego. Any qualities that movie has is just blurred out by a giant cardboard cutout of Tom Cruise in the way. Yeah. It's sort of a weird movie in Cruise's career because I'd argue that why Wantanabe got the Oscar nomination over Cruise is because a big blockbuster like this needs an actor and a performance you can't help but root for, like a movie star. And I think yeah. all, Sci- all Scientology stuff aside, that is something like Cruise is one of the best at. Like for a run in the 90s, like a poster with just his face grinning would make sure your movie was a hit. But yeah, yeah, the last summer I came out in 2003 when Cruise was sort of downplaying his natural charisma, like around the same time as Vanilla Sky, Minority Report, and Collateral, Cruise Dark, if you will. Yeah. And uh, before that was Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut. And in this movie, he's like emphasizing the PTSD his character experiences after taking part in the American Indian Wars. And he's an alcoholic. And there's this part where he's going through alcohol withdrawal after being captured by the samurai. And he keeps screaming like, Sake! And it's great. <laughs> but it, but it's not a very charismatic turn. And I think Watanabe is actually the person who brings to the movie that uh, magic, you know, that movie star quality. Yeah, yeah, he's because he, he plays um, Lord Katsumoto Oritsugu, who's like a kind of a warrior, poet, samurai lord who revolts against the westernization of Japan and the end of the samurai era and the beginning of like the Meiji era, which is kind of when the empire of Japan began. And then we all know that ended in 1945. But anyway, he's based on like Saigo Takamori, who's who's a guy who was like known as the last true samurai. So. Uh, there's a grain of truth to it all, even if it is kind of blown way out of proportion. Yeah, it's just it's odd because uh, obviously it's very it's very disarming at first because he's captured because Tom Cruise is captured and like he wakes up obviously after uh, recovering from all the injuries he got fighting the samurai in that first battle and uh, it's like a very disarming kind of uh, moment for him because he realizes that none of them want to kill him and well. A fair, a couple of them might want to kill him, but uh, <laughs> most of them are just kind of like they just kind of ignore him mostly, and yeah. except for um, Katsumoto, who uh, is very eager to practice his English with him. Yeah, I think they also view him as a bit of a coward because in, in Japanese, like being captured by the enemy is is seen as like you 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 should rather die than yeah yeah be you know be tortured and spill secrets. Yeah, because obviously he's looked down on by. Uh, I think the main fella is, I forget I forget the character's name, but he's played by Hiroyuki Sanada, who was in Sunshine. And, yeah, he's uh, a fantastic Ringu. actor. He's really good in The Last yeah, Samurai yeah, as who, well. Yeah, who ha- and he has the lushest head of hair I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> yeah. Th- that wig is incredible. Um, but yeah, and like the movie, it kind of becomes slow cinema from there. Because it's just Tom Cruise basically wandering around the village, learning about the culture and traditions of uh, the samurai and Japan in general. And learning the language and falling in love with uh, Taka, who is the wife of the samurai he killed. And eventually yeah. he goes on to wear his armor in battle with, when he joins up with the samurai and becomes the last samurai. Yeah. Although I've read that people, because this movie got tagged a bit with the whole white savior thing. And I, I, yeah. I, I definitely think it um, is a bit of a white savior narrative. But apparently the last samurai, samurai is plural in the title and it refers to them all. Like all okay, um, Watanabe's yeah, yeah, yeah. crew, but uh, it is very funny that the poster is like the Last Samurai. It's just a picture of Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I think what I, what I like about Watanabe in The Last Samurai is that he's built up so much as this imposing badass. So much so that yeah. like the Japanese have had to hire American soldiers to train their soldiers to quell his rebellion. And yeah. uh, even though the samurai have less men and don't use guns, they absolutely destroy the Japanese army in that first <laughs> battle. And yet when you when you meet him, he's this like intelligent, witty, honorable man, he even writes poetry. Yeah. And you realize he's he's not the villain, he's just this man out of time. What stops the movie from being a great one is that Watanabe's character should really be the lead and Cruz's role should yeah, be smaller. Absolutely. So, while, yeah. while while Cruz's character is interesting, like this American coming to fight against the samurai and being turned to their cause, what's a lot more fascinating is watching this old samurai see everything he's ever fought for turn against him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I feel like if the last samurai's um director Edward Zwick had done what Clint Eastwood did with Letters of Iwo Jima and hired a Japanese person to work in the script that would have happened because it, it's clearly yeah. the right thing to do and um, yeah. what, I, what I also like about Watanabe is that um, you know he is kind of channeling like Toshiro Mifune in like The Seven Samurai or in you know Wajimbo yeah. except yeah. unlike in those movies the world has changed around the samurai like he's playing it like he's this like heroic icon like he's like really charming he's there's a lot of like like kind of witty like funny lines he's kind of silent but kind of like imposing like and he he's like one time he's already like six foot one which is pretty tall and he put on 20 <laughs> yeah. pounds for the role so he's like even like more he just has like Both. he kind of just projects yeah. an air of like heroism yeah yeah he's a really imposing presence in any movie he's in and even like all those little things where he he meets Tom Cruise for the first time, he's like the whole bit about like we're having a conversation. I love that scene. <laughs> I really like when they're talking about the plot of the movie Three Hundred, where <laughs> they're kind of comparing their last stand. <laughs> they're comparing their yeah. last stand to the 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 Persian Greek battle and also to Custer's last stand. Like all that stuff. Yeah, the way yeah. little things kind of pay off throughout the movie, which is something his characters often do. Because Inception is very similar, where the lines aren't necessarily the most like funny lines, but like stuff that is referenced earlier on in the movie comes back later in the movie in like a really like interesting way and it's kind of delivered in kind of a wry style by Watanabe yeah um, he's really good at, he's re- really good at doing a lot with very little yeah that's very true yeah um, overall though so what do you think about The Last Samurai um, I think it's too long <laughs> and I think I totally agree that Ken Watanabe should be the lead and Tom Cruise should be pushed into the background and even replaced with someone who is, you know, less of a shining son of charisma. Yeah, that's probably for the best, like a, a weird character actor or someone. <laughs> um, I, I I enjoyed it. Um, I, I, I think it's kind of like gladiator light or like kind of Braveheart light. Yeah, yeah. But um, it yeah. is shot by John Tall who did the cinematography on Braveheart and um, I personally would have loved to have hung with the samurai in that village near Mount Fiji, uh, which looks amazing, very idyllic. It's yeah. actually New Zealand, but apparently it's a part of New yeah. Zealand that <laughs> is known for looking a lot like Mount Fiji. Um, do you want to go into letters from Iwo Jima? Of course, yeah. So during World War II, the island of Iwo Jima stands between the American military force and the home islands of Japan, and the Japanese army is desperate to prevent it from falling into American hands and providing a launch point for an invasion of the country mm. so um general tadamichi kuribashi played by ken watanabe is giving command of the forces on the island and sets out to prepare for the attack coming 
and having spent some time in America, he's not into the rigid traditional approach recommended by his subordinates, causing some resentment and resistance to fester amongst his staff. Yeah. And at the same time, in the lower echelons of the soldiers on Iwo Jima, there's this young fighter named Saigo, a poor baker in civilian life who uh, strives to survive under the harsh regime of the Japanese army, all while knowing that, you know, a battle is coming. And, uh, can we just stand yeah. Saigo for a second? Like, what a great guy and great yeah. performance. He's yeah. so good in yeah. the movie. Um, He's unreal. He looks... Uh, it's horrible, because that guy looks like a malnourished toddler put in a uniform and just sent out into battle. I, w- I was so amazed at how much this movie reminded me of Dunkirk. Yeah. In Like, I know it's like a war movie, so obviously there's some parallels, but even like, I feel like his character is very similar to Fionn Whitehead's in Dunkirk. And it yeah, even absolutely. like the bit where the the planes come over the island and bomb, like that almost is a, like I think the shot in Dunkirk feels like a lot more epic, but it is almost like the the same like way it happens. Like yeah, there's yeah. one person in kind of the forefront of the screen, and you just see all the bombs coming closer and closer, and it's yeah. it's kind of got a similar structure to you know Dunkirk, and that you're jumping around to all these like different people and these different um, like characters. Yeah, throughout yeah. the narrative, um, I think it's another great performance by Watanabe playing another like tragic hero and figure of authority. Yeah, out of, yeah. out, of, out of step with those around him because like, yeah, he lived and worked in the U.S. for a time, and he uses more Western tactics. Because yeah, in Japanese culture, what's seen as the honorable thing to do in battle is to prevent the enemy from advancing and be willing to die to stop that happening. Whereas Watanabe is more about delaying the advancement of the enemy and like slowing their momentum yeah. of the attack and spreading it out so that he can mount a defense through counterattacks on the attacker's weak points because they're spread out like that. And yeah. But the tactic is perceived as being cowardly by a lot of the Japanese soldiers, and that combined with the fact that Watanabe is known to love the U.S., and he carries this like special American cult gun he was given on his travels, which looks so good. It's got like a white handle. Um, yeah. Leads his, his lower-ranking soldiers to disobey him, and it's something that's really frustrating to watch because he, he does such a good job in selling that his character is like, a fundamentally decent person. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, like um, do you have any examples of that? Well, it's similar to uh, Elias Cotius in The Thin Red Line. It's like, this never happens in Letters from Iwo Jima, but there's a point where uh, Elias Cotius' um, character turns to Nick Nolte's character, who's in charge of him, and says, have you ever had someone die in your arms? And you get the same sense that, although uh, General Tadamichi Kuribayashi might have never had someone die in his arms. He never wants to have it happen to him. and mm. he, But he's in an impossible situation because, um, you know, this is basically the last stand for all these men. You know, the, the, they're delaying the inevitable. Like, Iwo Jima was a lost battle before, uh, long before um, Amer- it was even considered a battle. And his superiors so. even know it because he, the whole, throughout the whole movie, he's, like, calling for a backup like yeah, you know, bring, yeah. in some, bring in some planes, bring in things, and they're just like, no, we, they we just can't keep saying it. no. Yeah. yeah, he has that kind of Watanabe has that beautifully delivered line, which made me well up, and it suggests such like a deep well of emotion under his like stern commanding outer shell, where he says to Saigo, um, you know, when they're talking about family, he says, "It's strange. I promised myself to fight until death for my family, but the thought of my family makes it difficult to keep that promise." And you're like, oh my yeah. god, yeah, yeah. 
war is a it's terrible a similar, thing. Yeah, and it's it's horrible at the start as well because you know, obviously, anyone with any knowledge of like the war in the Pacific of how the war in the Pacific went will know how Letters from Iwo Jima is going to go. It's his his character is introduced like on a plane flying in towards Iwo Jima, and it's it's just him narrating a letter he wrote back to his family in Japan saying, uh, oh, "I'm sorry, I." Uh, couldn't get to clean the kitchen floor in time. It's still bothering me now. And you're like, oh God, no. You'll never get back to the kitchen floor. <laughs> also, like, unlike most of the commanders, like he's not just throwing soldiers at the enemy's machine guns without a plan. Like, yeah. he, he's actually trying to save them from dying unnecessarily because Saigo at one point is threatened, or at least two points, uh, he's threatened with death because he is yeah. seen as unpatriotic and then also seen, um, they think that he was trying to defect and... Uh, one time his character just shows up and like he just chastises the captain of Saga who's such a jerk for giving him a hard time yeah. being like why would you we need to defend the island why would you kill someone unnecessarily <laughs> and it's yeah, so good yeah. I will say though I think his turn is maybe given a little less time to breathe here than in The Last Samurai probably because we're jumping around to all these different characters because yeah, yeah. as well as one time there's Saigo and then there's the Olympian show jumper soldier who's really cool yeah. and the guy Shimizu the hero- who, who Saigo thinks is a spy yeah he's a good character too um, yeah it's there's um, one moment that really just kind of crystallizes Ken Montanabe's character uh, for me where it's like they get a radio broadcast from the home islands and it's uh, children singing a song about Iwo Jima for the men who are about to die. Mm, and beautiful scene. You only see, yeah, you only see um, Ken Watanabe like lit in kind of half darkness from his side profile. And like the look of like rage and sorrow and disgust on his face that, you know, his men are essentially dying for nothing and all that the people that his commanders back home can offer him and his men is a song from children that will soon be killed in American air raids. And you really feel like deep, you feel like the pit of your stomach drop out when that happened, or at least I did when that uh, scene plays. Yeah, no, it's a, it's in a really incredible scene. I kind of can't believe Clint Eastwood directed this movie because it's so good. Like I love Clint yeah. Eastwood so much, but when you hear that Clint Eastwood is going to direct a, a movie from the Japanese side of, um, you know, world war two, you're a bit yeah. like, ooh, I don't really know how that's going to go. But um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's so interesting and complex. And yeah. I think it, it is a bit of a slow build. But w- once the action kicks in and he starts getting into, like, how all these soldiers start to break under the pressure and, like, splinter off and start, like, disobeying commands, like, it's, it's really one of the most terrifying war movies I've seen in terms of that. Yeah, I agree. It is a weirdly grey movie, I found. Yeah, I do. I, like, it's I, very I watched, washed out. I watched it on a, a really terrible uh, portable DVD player and it was so yellow. <laughs> Just the, And I feel like that might have been a thing where Flags of Our Fathers, which was the companion movie to Lars Mujima, I feel like that was very blue in terms of like mm. the, the defining color. And I think he did um, like brownish kind of yellow to define letters from Iwo Jima to make it feel different. But uh, I do think it, I would have liked to have seen it just um, not without a filter on it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, I know we're going to jump around in the timeline a bit, but I was thinking it's it's worth noting that Iwo Jima is Watanabe working with Eastwood, and then he goes on to like embody Clint in the Japanese Unforgiven remake, right? Yeah, uh, he plays um, Jubei Kamata, who's a former samurai in the Hokkaido frontier, 
approached by an old friend called Baba to collect a bounty. Yeah, he's it's Unforgiven, but remade in Japan, in Japanese, about ex-samurai in 2013. Uh, I don't know if it was a huge success. I mean, it, it's played out a competition at Venice, but uh, I don't think it has the same reputation as Unforgiven does, as kind of the movie that uh, not killed the Western, but kind of let Westerns, you know, be a bit more free with how they talk about America's past and interpret it. I'm not sure if this does the same for samurai films because samurai aren't the same as cowboys in that, you know, uh, cowboys, you know, go by their own personal codes, whereas samurai are, you know, samurai is literally a code that they obey. But yeah, it's kind of like, what if um, Katsumoto from The Last Samurai didn't die and escaped and became a fugitive from the Japanese government. It's weird, like, it's it's an odd film, but it's also really reflexive, because, like, the Dollars trilogy, like, For a Few Dollars More, and The Fistful of Dollars, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly are all in some way based on, uh, like, Yojimbo, or other kind of samurai movies like Lone Wolf and Cub, or mm. uh, Seven Samurai, and uh, now we have a samurai film that's based on Unforgiven, which is kind of a homage or like a revisionist revisionist take on the Dollars trilogy or Yo, or Yojimbo or whatever, you know. A revisionist take on movies that were inspired by Yojimbo Seven Samurai. Mm. So it's strange like that. Yeah, that seemed kind uh, of like the main reason I think for making it and for watching it the the kind of curio quality of it cuz I I don't I, I remember it vaguely coming out in the UK and Mark Hermode reviewing it and sort of talking about it through that lens of it being like, Wajimbo is literally, or was literally remade as, you know, the first of the Dollars trilogy. And yeah. now it's come full circle that Unforgiven is being re- remade with Samurais, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so you wouldn't recommend it? Well, it's not that I wouldn't recommend it. I think it's very good. And I watched it quite close together with Unforgiven. And to be honest, they're the same film. It's just, you know, one has samurai and the other has a cowboy. I feel like um, the Japanese version is a bit more believable because in 1995, Clint Eastwood was already looking like quite old. Whereas in this one, like Ken Watanabe would have been 53 when it was made, and so he, and he still looks, you know, quite young now. So, you know, it's a bit more believable that he's able to take down so many men in a, such a crowded space at the end of the movie. Mm. And also, like because of the whole honor code and system that they have in for samurai it's never really believable that uh his character who is also known as jubei the killer was like a killer of women and children like early on it said oh like the government uh, killed the women and children you just took revenge on them didn't you and he never it's left ambiguous but you know that you know he would ne- he, this guy would never kill women and children whereas in unforgiven at the end of uh, that film Clint Eastwood is just like, yeah, yeah, I kill women and children, and I'm going to kill all of you as well. Yeah. And you're like, oh, God. <laughs> I imagine Ken Watanabe had to call Clint Eastwood and be like, so, I'm going to play you. And Clint was probably like, <laughs> oh, here's the thing, you just don't talk that much. <laughs> you think he gave advice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably it, yeah. I'd, like, I talk a little bit about his Nolan collaborations. Yes, go for it. Because uh, Wanatabi had um, a small role in Batman Begins as a, a member of the villainous organization, the League of Shadows, who you think at first is a super villain, super villain Ra's al Ghul, 
and he delivers this really stirring, intense monologue where he describes why Gotham must be destroyed, like Constantinople and Rome before it, and the way he says Rome <laughs> is amazing. However, it's only a, it's only a brief role because it's later revealed he was only assigned to impersonate Ra's al Ghul, who's actually Liam Neeson's character. So his, his part is relatively minor in Batman Begins, but he left an impression on Christopher Nolan, who was apparently so impressed with him that he gave him the massive role of Saito in his Dream Thieves masterpiece, Inception. I've always hated this carpet. It's stained frayed in such distinctive ways. But very definitely made of war. Why now? Which means I'm not lying on my carpet in my apartment. You have lived up to your reputation, Mr. Khan. I'm still dreaming. So, in Inception, we first meet Watanabe as an old man who Leo DiCaprio's Cobb meets after waking up on a beach, and Saito asks Cobb, Are you here to kill me? Then he takes a spinny top and says, I've seen one before. Many, many years ago, it belonged to a man I met in a half-remembered dream, a man possessed of some radical notions. And you're like, what the hell is going on? I have no idea. <laughs> um, then we suddenly cut to the past where Cobb and DiCaprio are younger men, and it turns out Cobb and his team are extractors, people who perform corporate espionage using experimental military technology to infiltrate their targets subconscious and extract information through a dream, a shared dream world. And their target, Saito, in this opening scene, reveals he arranged their mission to test Cobb for a seemingly impossible job, implanting an idea into a person's subconscious or inception. And uh, Saito wants Cobb to convince Robert, Pepe Kim Murphy, the son of Saito's ailing competitor, to dissolve his father's company when he dies. And in return, Saito promises to clear Cobb's criminal status, which prevents him from returning home to America with his children. So from there, the plot of the movie is essentially Cobb executing the plan and is building to the strange opening scene and filling in the gaps to make it make sense. <laughs> and uh, I think if Inception is an allegory for making movies, and I'd argue it is with Cobb being the director and Alan Page being the screenwriter and Tom Hardy being the actor, Kia Murphy being the audience, I think Watanabe sort of represents the studio or the money man. Like, he's the slick guy, yeah. always in a business suit. It's mentioned at one point he has a love nest for having affairs with his wife and he's a little shady. <laughs> but somehow he's still very likable and I think it's down to two things like a really snappy script and some like great deliveries by Watanabe and like moments of him doing a lot with very little because like there's this I think really funny part where their plan is to hack into Murphy's dream during a, a long 10 hour flight and the team says it would have to be a 747 plane because in a 747 plane the pilot's up top and the first class cabin is in the nose so no one walk through and Joseph Gordon-Levitt says, but you'd have to buy out the entire cabin and the first class flight attendant. And Saito just puts in being like, I bought the airline. And everyone turns <laughs> and stares at him. And Saito just shrugs being like, it seemed neater. <laughs> and he also kind of functions as the gateway into the world of Inception, along with Ellen Page, a student, because it's through Watanabe and her people new to the concept of Inception that we learn all the rules. So this is another great moment where Joseph Gordon-Levitt is explaining why Inception is so hard. It's, it's because the brain can trace the genesis of ideas. So just going loud, it's like, I say to you, don't think about elephants. What do you think about? And Ken Watanabe pauses for a second. I was like, elephants. It's so good. <laughs> uh, he's sort of this like nosy studio guy. He wants to go into the dream with Cobb and co, even though they warn him, no room for tourists in these jobs. A great line, which Watanabe repeats later in another great bit. 
and almost immediately he gets shot in in the dream world which <laughs> without going into too much specifics leads him to fall into limbo a kind of world of infinite subconscious in which streamers risk forgetting they are in a dream and turns out that Cobb and his wife Mal Paper Marion Cotillard had experimented with limbo and inception before with tragic consequences Mal had spent so much time in there that she began to think limbo was real and that reality was fake leading her to commit suicide and framing Cobb for her death it's really complicated if you've seen the movie you'll get it if not yeah. go go watch it and I, I feel like I'm talking a lot about the plot but I think it's really important in terms of like Saito and Cobb's relationship which I I've seen others argue is the key to the movie's emotional arc because Throughout the mission and the levels of the dream, Saito goes from being someone who just hired Cobb to being his friend. And I think it happens subtly yeah. through the planning and execution of the crazy plan and the cool rat-a-tat back and forth quips they and the team share. And I think Cobb deciding to face his demons and return to Limbo to save Saito, which is where they are in the opening scene, Saito being older because time works differently in Limbo, is Cobb's redemption moment. Like where he did wrong with his wife, he does right by Saito. Yeah. You can probably tell from me, Tom, but I really like Inception. I turned it on at 1am after a long day of work, expecting just to watch 30 minutes of it. I stayed up to the end to finish it. It just moves so well, so quick. But I'd argue kind of without Cobb and Saito's relationship and maybe Kenny Murphy's whole plot too with his father, the movie would just sort of be wall-to-wall exposition about yeah. with, with spectacular effects and really formal editing. All I remember from it is uh, that great bit where uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is covering them with, a, with an assault rifle and then Tom Hardy steps in and says, you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. That comes into the grenade launcher. (laughs) Tom Hardy is incredible in the movie. And apparently there's loads of um, erotic fan fiction about him and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's characters, if you're into that. I'm not, but uh, hey, if any of our listeners are, then go wild. (laughs) I I do think that the reason people who love the movie end up becoming emotionally invested in the stakes of it is those little human moments sprinkled throughout the mind heist. Uh, involving yeah. you know, Kimmy Murphy's character uh, or you know, Cobb and Saito and they pay off so well in that incredible extended Eisensteinian montage that is just the last act of the movie where you have like all the different levels of the dream coming together in this like 30 minute sequence it's really just like wow post Inception I don't think any sci-fi has come close to matching its like ambition so I'm hoping Tenet can do that yeah yeah um, will we talk a little bit about um the Godzilla films, because uh, Ken yes, Watanabe rec- recently starred in a couple movies based on kind of like long-running Japanese franchises, because he's in Detective Pikachu, and like I don't think we need to talk too much about Detective Pikachu because we talked about it a lot in the when we mentioned Bob Hoskins and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and also his character yeah. isn't really that much of a big deal in Detective Pikachu. But we'll talk a little bit about yeah. um, the two Godzillas. Study him, learn everything we could. We call him. Yeah, yeah, he plays um, Dr. Ishiro Serizawa, who's a scientist in uh, Project Monarch who study uh, the Mutos, as they're called in the first film, or Titans, as they're called in the second film. And he's basically the leading expert on Godzilla. I, th- I feel like Godzilla never really reacts to any characters in the movies. Like, he's basically a god, you know, he uh, doesn't bother his time with uh, people that are basically ants to him. So it's always characters reacting to Godzilla or King Ghidorah or Rodan or Mothra or the Mutos in the first film. But Ken Watanabe's character is the only character with an arc that's, yes, that yeah, it yeah. stretches across both movies because, you know, he's the expert on Godzilla and doesn't do a whole lot in the first film other than, you know, he has that great line where he, those two great lines where he's like, we call him 
Gojira. And, you know, he has the great line in the at the end of the near the end of the first one where he's like, The arrogance of man is thinking nature is in our control when it is the other way around. Let them fight. Yeah. And um, he's a bit kind of like in the first movie I thought he was a little bit like sleepy like i think it's implied that he's sort of a drunk or kind of always hung over or something but they, he never really has kind of like a, a backstory i feel like someone was cut there yeah maybe because there's this there's that scene with the watch where it stopped at the time that the atomic bomb was dropped on hiroshima and oh yes yeah like that's like a pretty good scene because of all the like regret and sorrow that's playing across um Ken Watanabe's face during that scene and like the realization that David Strahern has uh, but it feels like there's a lot leading up to that that was cut and um, it feels like there's a better arc there for uh, Serizawa but uh, it, he never gets it I mean in fair, his arc is well it's the only one that stretches across both movies but it's also like the only it's the only good one um, yeah <laughs> Because he he's he sacrifices himself to save Godzilla in the second film. It kind of shows you how far the Godzilla films have come, really. Because uh, at least in the West, because in obviously Roland Emmerich's 1998 Godzilla, like Godzilla was this massive threat that was really hard to empathize with. Uh, whereas in Gareth Edwards' Godzilla and Mike Doherty's uh, Godzilla: King of the Monsters, he's obviously he's the only thing capable of saving mankind from all these other horrible monsters. Yeah. And um, whereas in Japan, the Toho Godzilla films have kind of gone back, gone way, way back to the first 1954 film where he's a threat again and he is this horrifying monster um, that is, you know, out to destroy and level everything we hold dear. The, the West is finally able to empathize with monsters that aren't giant monkeys. Hooray. Yeah. Yeah, and then it, as we said, like one time he's going to be in Tokyo Vice, which I think he he's, yeah. he's going to be so great in a Michael Mann movie. Yeah, totally. Well, listen, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Um, send us an email at I know that at gmail dot com if you have someone you'd like us to cover on the show, or if you you know work in journalism or film or podcasts and you'd like to appear on. Uh, follow us at Twitter at I know that face p one. Instagram at I know that face. Uh, thanks to Shani Fernandez as well for editing the podcast and for running the Instagram page. Where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. Uh, you can follow me at the Headstuff Film section where hopefully by the time this episode drops, we'll have put up our kind of mid year list. So the best TV and movies that have come out in 2020 so far. Um, so be sure to check that out. On that note, see you later, Cinephiles. Bye bye. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.